So managing large clinical trials, a trial of any size or any complexity is, is hard work and requires one thing in abundance, and that's um, efficient trial management. And it also requires dedication and a lot of passion because um, a lot of it can be very paperwork orientated. Unless you've got a passion for the subject, it can grind you down. But managing international trials requires all of that and a bit more. So what makes a successful trial? Well, I'm, I'm sure I'm talking to the converted. You all know these things, especially if you're, you're working on evidence-based medicine courses. But all trials, big or small, need a burning question. A burning scientific question where you've got enough people, where you've got equipoise, enough uncertainty around the country or around the world to make this something that they want to know the answer to. Um, relevant outcome measures, which is a, a topic of great debate. Uh, outcome measures that are acceptable to the participants. I mean, once took, uh, was setting up a trial in um, MS and the clinicians were very keen on relapsing and remission, time to um, remission and time to relapse. Um, but when we talked to the MS patient groups, all they wanted to know was when will I have to be in a wheelchair? And so there's very outcomes that are relevant to clinicians and outcomes that are relevant to participants. And hopefully you get something that's relevant to both. And a sample size that is feasible. Um, we do large trials and the PITO motto is the, the bigger the better. Um, but it's got to be feasible. I mean, the instance of the disease, you can't do a big trial in something that's very rare. So uh, a feasible sample size. And quite often trials fail because the original sample size is just unrealistic. Um, a realistic timeline. I mean, these days we've got into this sort of 70 days of first patient into a trial, which I think has been plucked out of the air. I don't see any rationale for it, but it's all to do with realistic timelines. Enthusiastic teams, as I said before, you've got to have a passion for some of this. And enough resources. And you all know we all suffer from resource um, dirge. Uh, and a trial manager. And I have to say this because I am one. And, you know, trial managers can actually make or break a trial. And the importance of a trial manager um, was recognised quite a long time ago by the MRC and laterally by the HTA um, because um, they actually did some work around whether a trial, a trial was managed by a trial manager or by a team or by a clinician. And the successful trials had somebody that had an overview of the trial and actually knew what was going on in all aspects. Didn't have the answers and couldn't actually um, provide the answers in the clinical areas or the quality control areas, but had an overview of what was going on. And as I say there, a good trial manager is involved in all aspects of it and it avoids sort of unworkable systems and things that you have to go back and, and review all the time. And there are generic job descriptions provided by um, the NIHR and the UK Trial Managers Network, which Lee said that I'm involved in. Um, and these are some of the responsibilities that you would expect a trial manager, a good trial manager, to, uh, to undertake. Now, that's not saying she does it on her own, of course. Uh, he or she does it on her own, looking at somebody there who I know is a trial manager and is not of my sex. Um, so they don't do it on their own. There is obviously a team. But as I say, it's that overview. It's the big picture. And project, project planning, which is crucial. I mean, no business, whether you were remodelling your house, whether you were opening a new shop, school or whatever, no, nobody would go into it without having a plan. And, you know, project management plans, the print, you know, print series, etc., 
all have these features. A clear objective aimed to bring about change. That's what we do with a trial. We have a clear objective. We aim to bring about change. Requiring a team of people to do it, we require a team of people. We require statisticians, our clinicians, our uh, health economics people, etc. A set time scale, defined resources, and tasks that we, which need to be completed to a pre-specified standard. Our SOPs, our guidelines, our approval systems. So this is what project management is. It's nothing different from running a trial. In fact, it's essential to running a trial. And the five basic processes in uh, project management are initiation, planning, executing, monitoring and controlling, analysis, reporting and closure. This is what we do. These are our five processes. Um, so, you know, we initiate our sites, we plan in detail the way forward. We then have the plateau phase where we're executing this, where there's recruitment and the trial sort of goes into a plateau phase. And monitoring and controlling, so we have our monitoring site visits and the way we control drug dispensation, etc. Analysis, reporting and closure. All of these you'll be very familiar with. But what I don't think a lot of trials people realise, especially people uh, that run them like me, is that it is part of a, a well-known process. It's just not us being trial managers. It's all part of a project management plan. And there are project managers all over the world. So the whole team effort that you need to actually put this project plan in place is one of collaboration. Now, we talk about collaboration all the time in clinical trials. And it tends to sort of err on the side of it's the collaboration with the investigators at sites but actually it's collaboration between internal external in your within your team with your statistician everybody needs to own it because if everybody owns it then it becomes real and it will it will deliver um, the trial is more likely to be successful if everybody enjoys it <laughs> if members of the team feel that, that they're all part of it and they're all valued. And quite often that is not the case. There's you know, a, a very much a hierarchy and uh, people get sort of left behind. And when it's a team and it's a multidisciplinary team and they own it, it's more likely to succeed. Um, and this is everything through from the, you know, when you first had the first idea and the CI comes and says, well, what do you think to this? And you sit down around a table and you start developing the question right the way through to, you know, dissemination and the archiving of the data. And everyone needs to know where it is and for how long it's going to be there, etc. And integrating all the procedures is another thing that I think is so crucial to clinical trials. Clinical trials shouldn't be something that's put upon people. It should be integrated into their routines. If it's integrated into their routines, then it will become part and parcel of what they do day by day. And other than the specific forms they might have to sign or complete, it won't be a chore to them. Because if it's a chore, then your recruitment will be less. And if the data collection follows the clinical progress, then the chances are they will also fill in your form because they're not doing anything different to what they would do normally in their day-to-day -day task for looking after that patient. Um, we try to minimise extra visits or tests for participants, that's purely so they don't have to keep coming back to hosp hospitals or clinics and the costs are attached to that. Um, but if you've got a bunch of clinicians that are very busy or a bunch of nurses very busy, you don't want them to actually feel that they've got to do extra work and usually in our field for nothing. Um, 
and with the international trials I run, their resources are even less. And so therefore, you know, we do try to keep everything to a minimum, but enough data to answer our question. And efficient systems are, again, very crucial to um, the whole running of a trial. I mean, I started off running trials with index card system and a daisy wheel typewriter. It wasn't efficient, but that was what we had then. And, but now we have the, you know, the benefits of systems, IT systems that can be robust, that can re produce reports and newsletters and letters to patients, etc. At, at a click of a button. And so a good trial has a good, robust, transparent system and, and something that, you know, will, uh, if you like, service the trial. You're not there to service the computer. The, the computer and the system service the trial. Um, and if the trial is an international trial, um, they should take account of all the different, differing practices and work environments and, and obviously governance. But what we found, which is most important, is that all our systems workable across all different browsers because in the international arena you don't have the latest Windows whatever you have uh, something that's you know still work, working on Windows 3 or whatever and they have to be able to use them because otherwise it costs you you and your funder a fortune to keep updating everything and <laughs> having said that in the study that I've recently been running they didn't want to buy Microsoft because it was expensive. And the thought of spending £40 on a disc when they could get it for £2 in the market, when we pointed out to them that £2 in the market actually is not a Microsoft uh, system, it's a black one and it's full of viruses. It's just that that initial thought of spending £40, which is probably a half a month's wages for somebody, is completely you know, abhorrent to them. So making sure that they can work on the, what they've got without too much fuss. And efficient recruitment, when a, tr a trial succeeds or fails and whether it manages to recruit the pre-specified number of participants. And as I said earlier, sometimes it's not realistic, um, the, the, the uh, sample size. Um, so making sure that's right up front and that you've, you've got the centres that have the patients um, is, is really crucial and work done in developing those sort of things is time well spent. But there's very little evidence about, you know, what recruitment strategies we should, you know, go for. I mean, it's, you know, we need to recruit 700, 7,000 or whatever patients and off you go. Um, there's lots of information out there about, you know, good clinical practice and, you know, and the stats and equipoise and consult, but we've got no guidance for what recruitment strategies we should use. And there has been, you know, recently some, well, in the last 10 years, some work done on it, but nothing that actually points you to something specific to say, right, I will start here, this is where we need to start, and this is the process we need to take. And, you know, experienced trials managers just have learnt by suck it and see, really. It's like, you know, okay, we'll start off, we'll give them a target, and we'll see how it goes. And this is where I just get very frustrated that we've got lots of guidelines and um, sort of Damocles, consult, whatever, on how to report a trial. We've got lots of things when it comes to GCP on, on how we should set up a trial and get our approvals and permissions. But there's the bit in the middle that we've got no real model of management. And maintaining recruitment over long periods of time 
you know, it requires real stamina from everyone. So your trial's got to be interesting. It's got to have a passion and it's got to have that ownership which will, you know, enable them to feel that they can carry on. And this is what a Cochrane review of clinical clinicians participating <coughs> in RCTs um, found when they looked at 11 relevant um, observational studies and they looked and they asked the clinicians, so what would prevent you recruiting into the trial or what would help you um, to recruit in the trial? What would maintain your interest? And the first one was, you know, interest in evidence-based practice. So they want a question that's going to actually hopefully change practice and if it doesn't change it for you know something different it sometimes just stops it. Um, I was involved in a trial once where they were doing an ECIC bypass and actually they stopped the surgeons doing it because the result of the trial was they were doing harm and there's quite a few trials like that and they get more and more getting published nowadays. Um, participation in an academic group so lots of clinicians would be more inclined to be involved in a trial if they were working with an academic group rather than industry. If they had extra staff to help them recruit. If they thought the patients were interested, and that's where I go back to the MS study, where the patients weren't interested in how long it was going to take for them to relapse. They were more interested in how long before they were in a wheelchair and had to adapt their home. Um, and they felt comfortable explaining in trials to patients and the whole issue of explaining randomisation. We've had people say, well, we just flip a coin and then you get whatever treatment. That's probably not the best way forward. So uh, these were what the pointers that the clinicians gave us in trying to work through recruitment strategies. And then again, the back to the ownership thing and making sure everyone is credited for the trial right the way through to, from the beginning to authorship and dissemination. It's very easy for people to get missed off, very important people sometimes. I mean, you've got your clinicians, your investigators, but then you've got the nurses on the ward that get the notes all the time, or you've got the pharmacists who make sure that the drugs are accounted for and accountable. And sometimes all those people get miss, missed off a publication and they don't get that sort of credit. So developing ownership throughout and making sure you keep track of it is so important. It is really so important. That's how you build up networks that will go on to the next trial and go on to the next trial because they feel comfortable and they feel valued. In the trial manager's guide that we've, we've written over the years, we've got three C's for um, trial management and it's obviously collaboration, it's communication, it's creativity and common sense. Now the creativity, we can't do so much of it these days because we're a bit tied with regulation, but we, we can be a bit creative. Um, and the common sense is the one that I think uh, lays, lays over everything, because the whole thing about trial management is common sense. You don't actually do a trial of a rare disease and expect to do 10,000 patients in two years and two centres. It's the common sense that goes through everything. And communication, the second C, is again making people feel valued but making sure that, that you talk to them all the time. You know, so if they're not recruiting, you don't just go off and say to all the good centres, oh well done, thank you very much, you're doing brilliantly. You, you say the same to the centres that are not recruiting and have a conversation to find out why they're not recruiting. And sometimes it's something very, very simple, um, something they've misunderstood or some, they've been on, uh, on a comment somewhere and you've not known it so you just sort of toss that centre aside and say they're hopeless but actually they're not. So, you know, 
how do we get to the point where we can run big trials which may have many challenges? And according to the EU directive, we all should be educated, trained and experienced in the tasks we will perform in a trial. Well, for trial managers, that's a bit difficult because there's no specific trial training for to be a trial manager um, and we can't evidence it anywhere that we, uh, other than years of experience. Um, and so I find this very difficult and I'm quite passionate that there should be ways that trial managers can become qualified and recognised from the top down so that we're not always struggling to sort of, if you like, justify ourselves. There are now um, MSCs around over the last sort of 10 years, MSCs have popped up. And, and a lot of the, the stuff in the, in the MSCs is about the practical side of running a trial. But at the moment, much of the collective wisdom of, of people like me, and there are many more of me, um, sort of suck it and see trials. And we pass it on by word of mouth and just say, well, I did this, why don't you try that? And that is really probably at the detriment to a lot of trials that you know, we don't have um, a quali qualified staff who can manage trials to a, a particular standard, to a particular model. And the survey was done um, just last year by the UK TMN. And of the 460 trial managers, 60% of them did not want a higher degree. What they wanted was they were seeking you know, specific training to do their job. But what they did want was the recognition for that. And they wanted to be accredited somehow. And that's what we're working towards, some sort of accreditation system where people who don't want to go to a, a higher degree have some accreditation they can take forward, almost like you sort of your years of experience that you can put in when you, you go for a, a, a higher education course. And the other thing is, although intuitively trial managers actually use project management principles and practices, I think we need to have more evidence that it works in a, in a trial situation. Um, and more research on research. I mean, I've been trying to persuade trial managers to do research on their research for years in, in the way they do it, what works, what doesn't work. Bits and pieces coming out in the literature from time to time, but not a lot, because not a lot of journals are interested. In fact, it's only trials that I think takes everything in that way. Most of the other journals were not interested in that sort of research. So it's, if it's large or it's international, or if it's small and it's local, trials fail because tried and tested systems have not been documented or evaluated or published so that the next ones coming along behind us, the next generation, can read up in the literature how to do it, what worked, what didn't work, etc. And we've been reinventing the wheel all the time. And still today, somebody said to me, what would you do if? And I said, well, they did that in the other, that trial, and they did that in that trial, and it was, well, where do I find out about that? And if you read the trial publication, there's very little on how we did it. The method section will have a lot about maybe the randomization and the minimization, but very little about what challenges were faced with, with recruitment or re retention, how it was overcome. It's, not in, it's just not acceptable by the journals. And so that's what we carry on doing. So to improve the successful delivery of trials, we do need management guidelines and we do need robust 
methods of evaluating what we do. But international trials do bring added challenges and, you know, they can be overcome with some, you know, good systems. But some of the obvious differences between a national and local trial, international trial, are languages, time differences, local regulations and in-country problems. And, and they can be many, many. Um, but if you've got a good project plan, you should have space within your planning to allow you to take, take the emergencies as they arrive and deal with them. And, and that's what I found with the international trials over the year. I've got to have a plan almost day by day, week by week, so that when something comes on your desk on a Monday morning, you can move it to Friday because you know that that's not going to be an emergency. You lift, you've left yourself enough time to do what you were going to do on Monday to move it four days so you can deal with something else. But knowing your audience in an international trial is really crucial. And knowing the countries, the people, traditions and the culture are all so very important if you're going to actually get the recruitment in, knowing that the participants understand what they're entering into. So spending time talking to the local investigators, the nurses and the participants is valuable time spent in the development time that you will you know, save time as the trial progresses when you're not having to unpick misunderstandings, etc. And, and also flexibility is key. So I'm not saying that um, we gear away from our SOPs or whatever, but being able to think about how flexible you can be in an international trial, again, is important up front because things will happen. You know, we, in the trial I've been, just been running, have had all sorts of things like, you know, civil war, floods, earthquakes. Um, but you can be flexible in some things. You know, you can allow consent to be taken with a thumbprint. You can allow consent by a spouse, providing that you know all this up front. And when it goes to their local ethics committee, that's what's agreed. But that's where the time in the development is really important. And again, encouraging local ownerships, because the results must be applicable within that country. You know, if they never do a um, laparoscopy, what is the point in proving that laparoscopy works for whatever uh, procedure, works in whatever procedure, if they haven't got a laparoscope? And we've had that sort of incident happen. So I just want to run you through this trial, which I'm just bringing to an end. Um, and Claire up the back there will probably be saying, is she? Did she? <laughs> um, so, coronis is a caesarean section, is one of the most common um, operations carried out in, in the world. And I think some of you might be surprised to know that, you know, in the developing countries, as many as 25% of births are by caesarean section. And in places like Sudan, it's 59%. Um, and in likewise in Brazil. So, it's uh, an operation that's carried out daily, which you think is very safe, but it's done in all sorts of different ways and a variety of surgical techniques, none of which have ever been proven to be one better than t'other, are used. So uh, there was a distinct lack of good quality RCT evidence when we started to look at this issue. So, but we did realise that not only was it a huge um, population we had here to look at, we also realised that you know, if you had a tiny difference it would make a lot of difference to a lot of women and a lot of babies. So the trial design was a two by two by two by two by two factorial, fractional factorial design trial, which is very difficult. It's two pairs, two, five intervention pairs, and it's called non-regular because we only randomised them to three of the five, and that's why it's fractional. 
And it was done like this because these are the five main techniques used to enter a woman's womb and retrieve a baby. So these five techniques were the, the main ones. And we only randomised to three for, com for compliance reasons, to give the clinicians some clinical freedom. So, uh, for instance, if a woman, if a site rather, um, only ever done a single layer closure on a woman because that was their protocol, we didn't want them to defer from their protocol. We wanted to carry on doing what they usually do because that was their protocol. But if they could do the others, then they could be randomised to the other three. We had 19 sites in seven countries and we had eight regional trial offices. I have to say the 5 by 2 uh, non-regular fractional factorial design has never been used in medicine before. It's only ever been used in agriculture. So this is the very first um, trial ever to be done like this and it was published in The Lancet last May, May 13. So we had eight regional trial offices, which was also a first for me because what we did was we wanted to set up trial offices in every country so that they could do their own data cleaning. They could, we could teach them how to run a good local trial. So we, in fact, we've got you know, eight local trials. And it's that capacity building for the next generation in those countries, which was very important to me. Uh, so we landed up with 54 trial members in the, tr in the regional offices uh, that we worked with daily. So we recruited between May 07 and December 10, and we recruited 15,935 women. And, and it was a bit on, it was on target. We, we extended for about three months purely because we had a few difficulties at the beginning and some of our countries had to start late. Uh, uh, President Bhutto went and got assassinated on the day we were flying to Pakistan to start off the Pakistan sites, so we couldn't go. So unfortunately, Pakistan started six months late, so therefore we had to switch the recruitment back to the end. And this is where they were. So um, Asia, Africa and South America. And the primary outcome was death or a composite of maternal infection. And you'll see there the components of the maternal infection. And blood transfusion of more than one unit, and there's a story to that too, um, is the blood transfusion for PPH, postpartum hemorrhage. And it's more than one unit because we did, after the first interim analysis, there was a big spike and our DMC asked us to look at blood transfusions, and we realised that 75% of our blood transfusions were coming from one country, because they all take one unit in with them when they go in for operation, and they have to use it, and it's not ethical to take it home. So in Pakistan, every woman is given one unit of blood after her caesarean section, which is probably no bad thing, because a lot of them are anemic, but they take that blood in, and it's been donated by a relative, and they don't take it home. So we then changed, we had an amendment to our protocol and we changed it to more than one unit so that we didn't have this big skew. Okay, so some of the challenges we faced. Randomization was done by web and telephone. And as you can see there, web and telephone lines, the connectivity was, was amazing. They had it hanging out windows, anywhere they could get uh, a line in to get web internet connection. But you know, they managed 24-7 randomization. During the daytime, it was done over the web in the trials offices. In the nighttime, it went through to our office here in Oxford. It was a voice recognition system in three languages. It was in Spanish, English, and Indian English. Because our, our Asian uh, site said, well, we can, we can sort of understand the English, 
but can our investigator come and do it in his English, because then we'll understand it better. So he came and did a tape for us, so we had it in Indian English as well. Um, and, and apparently the people in Pakistan understood that better than, than our CI's English. <coughs> and of course, um, very different to the UK, this is Ghana, 16-bed ward, um, and probably about four to a bed, as you can see, under the beds as well. But they're very jolly, and they're all so happy, and it makes you feel quite humble to go there and work there and then come back and see what we've got and what we whinge about, because they're all very happy. They've all got these lovely babies, and, you know, their nurses are all jolly. And so we go there and we come back and think, hmm, can't get GP appointment until next Friday. <laughs> so this was our recruitment. And uh, as I say, we, we started in May 07. And we, we official start was September 07 because we had a running period where we expected to get up, as you see, we went from 12 to 25 to 50 to 75%. So we, we hoped to reach our 400 a month, which was our target by September, which we did. We had some dips, and a lot of our dips were uh, religious holidays, Ramadans, and things like that and so we got to again you see that's knowing your culture it's not going into a panic when suddenly in August the 1st your recruitment drops off because you know that Sudan and, and Pakistan etc they're in Ramadan so they're not going to recruit and these were the five intervention pairs and one of my jobs and one of the questions I was asked interview was <coughs> okay Barbara if you've got five intervention pairs and they start to deviate what would you do change them <laughs> so I said well I'd probably change the intervention see if I could change them to another site. And at about May, May 9, uh, so, uh, two, um, one and five started to deviate out. As you can see, I can't see there. It started to deviate out. So because we knew our sites and because we knew their, their level of recruitment and because we'd asked the questions early, early on, what would you be prepared to do? We could change two of our sites to a different intervention. So they stopped what they were doing and they started to do the other two interventions. The three intervention pairs, which, as you can see, brought it back so that at the end they were sort of nicely together. And we had about over 9,000 in each pair, which was what we were aiming for. But that was a challenge, monitoring this every week and, you know, down here thinking, oh, crikey, they're getting a bit wide. <laughs> they're getting a bit wide. Um, and these were our uncontrollable events. We, we couldn't actually build this into our project plan at all. So assassination of Bhutto, we had a civil war in Sudan which split the country in half, um, tribal conflicts in Kenya which meant that a lot of our women had come from the uh, areas around Nairobi and they'd all been taken off up the Rift Valley into camps, terrorism and flooding in Pakistan, heatwaves in India, in fact we were there setting up the site when they, that road was melting in Delhi, it was the hottest it had ever been, uh, an earthquake in Chile. And all these things, you know, you have to sort of take in your stride because what can you do? I mean, we're not going to stop. What we did worry about, we worried very much about, we did worry about the tribal conflicts and the civil war in Sudan and the flooding in Pakistan, which moved women away. And we were very worried because we were doing at least three-year follow-up. So we did worry about our um, attrition when it comes to the follow-up because we thought a lot of our women would be so far away. But having said that, technology has taken over in these countries big time, and mobile phones, everybody, everybody from a four-year-old upwards got a mobile phone. So providing you collect enough mobile phone numbers, the chances are 
you will actually be able to find your woman in the end. So, follow-up. We still followed up 13,226, which was 84%, um, which we thought wasn't bad, given what had gone on before. And uh, we're, at the moment, writing this paper for hopefully publishing in The Lancet this year. But some other statistics. This is where we travelled. thought you might find this a bit interesting. The equivalent to 17 times around the world and 28 air miles per woman. And we survived. But we only survived with around about 800 anti-malaria tablets between the three of us, and 20 different hotels, eight passports, all the sort of stats that statisticians are not, statisticians are not interested in, but we were. <laughs> um, and our paper is about 103 Cronus team members, because this is because of the Eiffel Tower, and we're trying to find somewhere to archive it all. So this is what we've been doing. I've been doing it for 35 years. I find it very challenging. I find it very, very interesting. It's a job I'll always get out of bed for. Um, and as I say, it's been humbling. But also, it's been exciting and it's been fun. And this is, I think, something that is getting lost in clinical trials. And I think it needs to come back because every job you work in, everywhere, has to have a bit of fun. And if you can enjoy it with your, your experiences with your investigators and the variety of people that you work with on clinical trials, if you can enjoy it and have fun, then it'll be a good trial and it'll be one worth doing. Thank you.